Tonight we start a brand new series. It's going to be a nine-week series, as I recall, called The Gospel-Centered Life. And uh, it's going to be team-taught. So uh, next week, Pastor Adam's going to, there are nine lessons. Uh, and then next week, Pastor Adam's going to take lesson number two. And tonight I'm going to kind of set the stage for the whole thing um, with, uh, as we look at what a gospel-centered life is, what, what we're talking about when we say that, and how the gospel then impacts uh, our lives. One of the... Um, one of the most important concepts that I teach and one that I've taught uh, reiterated countless times over the years, and yet it's one of those, one of those concepts that I don't know why, but it, it seems like it doesn't always sink in and, and it, it kind of hovers and, um, and, and I'll hear people say things and I'll have conversations where I'll think, well, maybe I haven't done a very good job of communicating this. But one of the concepts that, that again, very important concept is that the gospel is uh, is not just for the unbeliever; it's also for the believer. So, the, so, so Christians, believers, those who have been made alive in Christ, still need the gospel. You don't kind of move on to you know sort of, sort of deeper things. Um, there was a when I was at the last church I was at, there was a guy. This is maybe this is probably seven or eight years ago. There was a couple that was part of the church and. When I first started, they were uh, they were kind of known to be harshly critical. In fact, they they'd established a reputation of being very critical of pastors and leaders. And they, the husband and wife, not really involved anywhere in any leadership role, but very critical of those who were. And uh, I had lunch with this guy, and he compl- he really started right away with you know sort of criticizing the previous pastor. Didn't really care about people. Didn't invest in people. And then they, also the current associate pastor wasn't really detail-oriented and wasn't doing a very good job. The worship pastor didn't understand sacred music, so it just went on and on. Of course, you know when someone is complaining about everybody around them, you know that you will soon be in the target, right? You'll soon be in the crosshairs. So it was only a matter of time until he was frustrated with some directional stuff. And so we met, and um, he said, you know, in fact, let me read... uh, I'm not going to tell you who it is. But you wouldn't know him anyway, but let me read this, this, uh, what he sent me by email. He said um, he was very frustrated that, that in all of our messages, in the messages that were all very Christ-centered, and, and he said to me, the gospel is the door to our faith and salvation, but once we have understood and embraced it, we're on then into the world of the Christian life. And what he was saying to me was, now we had, you know, we had covered some, we preached through some books of the Bible expositionally. When you do that, you know, a number of themes surface, right? So we talked about the tension between God's sovereignty and human freedom. And uh, we talked about the the sanctity of human life. And we talked about sexual ethics. And uh, we talked about creation. We talked about God's power and majesty. We talked about the beauty of marriage and how a husband and wife live together in this incredible, mysterious way. We talked about grace-centered, gospel-centered parenting. We talked about heaven, hell, and the mystery of the incarnation, all these things. But to him, he was really frustrated that we just kept going back to Jesus. And he was like, you know, we got to, okay, we, we get that already. Let's move on. And um, so I tried to help him understand that it's not really the way that it works. You don't kind of, and, and his, he was a big eschatology guy, so he was very much in end times and wanted me to preach on, you know, symbols and so on. And, and I tried to explain to him that that's not really the way it works. As a Christian, what we do is we learn to rest more deeply, to grasp at a deeper level the gospel. I read uh, to him this quote by uh, Timothy Keller who says, and this is not on the screen, this is a long quote, so I didn't put it out there for you, but 
He says, we're not justified by the gospel and then sanctified by obedience, but the gospel is the way we grow and are renewed. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier. It's very common in the church to think as follows. The gospel is for non-Christians. One needs it to be saved. But once saved, you grow through hard work and obedience. The Colossians 1, 6, and I'll show you that in just a moment, shows that this is a mistake. Both confession and hard work that is, that's not arising from and in line with the gospel will not sanctify you. It will strangle you. All our problems come from a failure to apply the gospel. Thus, when Paul left the Ephesians, he committed them to the word of his grace, which can build you up. The main problem then in the Christian life, this is Keller going on, is that we have not thought out the deep implications of the gospel. We've not used the gospel. He puts the word used in quotation marks. Use the gospel in and all parts of our life. He quotes Richard Lovelace, who says the most, most people's problems are just a failure to be oriented to the gospel, a failure to grasp and believe it through and through. Thus, Luther says, the truth of the gospel is that principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their head continually. The gospel is not easily comprehended. Paul says that the gospel only does its renewing work in us as we understand it in all its truth. Last sentence of this quote, all of us to some degree live around the truth of the gospel, but do not fully get it. So the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal, renewal and even revival is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. So, end quote. And I would add to that, the gospel is kind of like a, a diamond in that when you turn, the more you turn it, the more you gaze at it in different lights and so on, the, the more you see all the intricacies and all the beauty. And, um, you know, of course, diamonds have different cut and clarity and what's the other C color. And the more that you look at them, the more that you, you see just how uh, magnificent they are, such is the case with the, with the gospel. So maybe say, well, okay, but is that really from, from the Scriptures that we continue to grow by virtue of the gospel? Let me give you a couple of examples. Colossians, uh, we read right away, Paul it says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and of Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, who's Paul writing to? He says he's writing to the saints, right? He's writing to Christians. He says the gospel continues to bear fruit and increase in you. So the gospel is actually increasing you, and it's through your uh, more well-rounded understanding of the gospel that actually now we're seeing more and more fruit grow both in the world and then in your own lives. Um, let me just give you one more. This is a long passage, but it's so helpful. Uh, this is uh, from Second Peter. Peter writes to scattered and suffering Christians, some on the verge, uh, uh, apparently, of throwing in the towel, as it were. And he says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which 
he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to this, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, of course, there's, I mean, this could be a two-hour sermon on this one section. It's just so dense and rich. But let me just make a couple of comments. Peter says that it is through the knowledge of God's calling and cleansing of us, verse 3, that is the recognition, he goes on to say, verse 4, of these very great and precious promises, that God's power is released. So, and there's a great passage in Romans 5 you can read later that says a lot of the same stuff. It's more, as we grow to understand revel in and rest in the precious promises of God, what God has done for us in Christ, i.e. the gospel, God's power then is unleashed in us to good works, worship, and so on. And then he goes on to say, Peter does, he says, anyone who has, uh, if there's no, anyone who lacks these qualities of godliness, virtue, self-control, steadfastness, brotherly love, he has forgotten what? That he was cleansed from his sins. This is the announcement of what God has done for us in Christ. In other words, the key to ongoing transformation is the release of God's power in our lives, which is applied to us as we dwell in God's precious promises, that is what God has done for us in Jesus, which is the gospel. And when transformation is not taking place in our lives, so if I'm not being transformed, I'm not demonstrating godliness, it's because I've actually forgotten what God has done for me in Jesus. So when we talk about the gospel, you know, we're, there's one gospel, one good news, one Greek euangelion, one announcement, but it takes a variety of forms. And let me just, first let me, let me at least, let me give you a definition. We've looked at this before, but as we, just so we're on the same page, the page here, the gospel, and here's, here's the way I'm defining it here, is the good news concerning Jesus Christ and what he has done to put right our relationship with God and to restore all of creation in which we will forever enjoy or we will glorify and enjoy God forever. So the gospel is the news, the announcement, the proclamation of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Now, because of the, God created us to be in relationship with him. See that throughout the scriptures, the, the late 40s chapters of Isaiah, made for his glory, and so on. But because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, sin has then infected and tainted everything that would ever come after that. And, of course, tainted the earth, the physical earth. You, you know about the, the curses, of course, in Genesis uh, chapter 3. And sin then taints everything. Um, and, and the worst part of that, the worst part of the fall is that our spiritual relationships are now broken. We, we, we're no longer right with God. We're wrong. We were born, actually, at enmity. We're, we're enemies of God. So before we do anything, and I, we can say it this way, which it sounds confusing, but I think it's helpful. Um, we're not sinners because we sin. 
We sin because we're sinners. In other words, even out of the womb, we are self-loving, you know, people who are separated from God. With my four kids, I never, ever had to teach them how not to share. It just, it comes naturally, right? They're, they're, they want their toys, and now I have teenagers, and they're still the same way. Even if it's a shirt that, that one of them never, ever wears, they don't want the other one wearing it. It's just, you know, don't go near my clothes, don't go near my stuff, whatever it is. You don't have, we don't have to, te- we come out of the womb actually looking to, you know, to get what we want. We're, we're self-lovers. Um, the Scottish preacher, uh, 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 what's the guy's name, McShane, uh, says that, that um, the cry of every single person on the way to hell is the same, and it's this, I am my own. I'm my own. I don't want somebody else telling me what to do. I don't want to submit to someone else's authority. I am the one who determines what I do. And so we're, we're broken. The world is broken. We're broken. And um, we're at odds with God. And what God does then, rather than say, okay, you know, clean yourself up, meet me halfway, he says, I'm going to come all the way to you, the beauty of the incarnation, the person and work of Jesus. And then when we, and Jesus, of course, lives that perfect life, dies on the cross, is raised again, and then it's by faith in Jesus' works, we're actually, you know, made new, we're, we're forgiven, we're justified, cleansed. And when God makes us new, then we're given a new nature, a new nature. But as long as we live on this earth, we will still st- we still live in the flesh, and so we're still going to struggle with sin. So we're made new. We have a new nature, but we're still fleshly creatures, so we're always going to struggle. In Romans 7, you know, there's some arguments on whether it's the regenerate man or the unregenerate man that Paul's talking about. To me, it's pretty clear it's the regenerate man. Paul says over and over, he says, look, the things I don't want to do, I just keep doing the things I really, really don't want to do, I, I do. The things that I wish I would do, I don't do. And there's that ongoing battle. This is because we're fleshly creatures. We do the things we don't want to do. Uh, a great, one of my favorite theologians, Cornelius Plantingus, says this. People tend to make two mistakes when they think about the redeemed life. The first is to underestimate the sin that remains in us. It's still there, right? We all know it, if we're honest with ourselves, of course. The second is to underestimate the strength of God's grace. God is determined to make us new. So as a result, all Christians need to say two things. We admit that we are redeemed sinners, but we also say boldly and joyously that we are redeemed sinners. See the difference uh, in emphasis. Um, We are redeemed, but we still constantly sin. Um, I don't know if you're allowed to read the Westminster Catechism in, the, in a Baptist church, but I'm going to at least do one, one question. Um, that's a terrible attempt at a joke. It's Wednesday night. Nobody, nobody, I'm sorry. Um, I, tried, I tried a joke at the, uh, what was that thing? Oh, the pizza with the pastors, and I don't know. It was terrible. It was so bad. Um, but, this, but, but I think the Westminster Confession really helps us here, the Catechism. This is question number 82. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? The answer is, no mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but does daily break them in thought, word, and deed. So, it is a consequence of being fleshly creatures, we, we, we live in unglorified bodies, that we will continue struggle with, with struggling with sin. And actually, 
if, we, if someone comes to us and they say they're struggling with sin, that's actually in some ways a good thing, right? Because unbelievers, those who are unregenerate, they don't struggle the way we do because they don't, they don't have the, the spiritual war going on. So we have this battle. We have this struggle. Um, uh, even though we are undoubtedly new, a new creation in Christ, we still have the wicked desires, sinful desires that are part of this indwelling sin. And it's the residue of sin that, that sort of hangs on to us in our humanness. And the gospel tells us that, yeah, we are unrighteous, but God loves us anyway. He sent his son to die for us. The gospel tells us that even though we fail, Christ has succeeded on our behalf. And again, you hear me say all the time, so his perfect record then is, in, is credited to us. Um, the gospel talks about this one-way rescuing love of God, but it's counterintuitive. So we are always going to, by nature, because we're fleshly creatures, slip back into earning mode, earning mode. So we believe, we're going to believe that we, we, we should get what we deserve. That's the way it should work because the gospel, again, goes against. It's counterintuitive. It's foolishness, Paul says. So um, if you've ever been reading a, a New Testament letter and thought, why does Paul deem it necessary to believers, and in the case of what, Thessalonians and a couple other ones, believers that seem to be really taking over the world, taking the world by storm, you know, why does he find it necessary to instruct believers in the gospel, to keep reminding them over and over and over and over the gospel? He does it in Galatians, he does it in Ephesians, uh, Philippians, or as my friend Van says, Philippines, um, Colossians, whatever it is. Paul knows that we have a, we have a tendency to forget what God has done and always come back to what we're supposed to do. And so he keeps just over and over with the gospel, right? So let me show you how this works, how gospel transformation works. So I don't know, Ashley, if you're doing PowerPoint or slides, whoever, let's put, I want to look at this chart. This is really helpful, I think. So, and this is from, this is actually from uh, the book. So let me credit uh, Bob, Thune, Bob Thune and Will Walker on this. But so what happens is you have your pre-conversion time, which everybody has before they're converted. No one's, you know, born a Christian. So you have this pre-conversion time where, John 6, God is wooing and he's drawing, and there's the, there's the external call, which happens through the proclamation of the gospel, um, through, through spiritual conversations with friends, through other, the prayers of other people. And then at one point, if you're a believer, at one point, God brings you to a place of repentant faith. So you, you, you come to the realization that I'm actually a broken person and I can never save myself. I have violated God's perfect standard, the law, okay? And so I need a Savior. If I'm going to be right with this God, I can't do it on my own. And so at some point, you see conversion takes place. And in Jesus, it's the new birth. It's being born again, right? Being born from above, being acted upon by the Spirit of God in such a way that, that you know, that we, we come to faith in Him and so on. And then what happens over time is, is you see these two circles that are going, or I'm, I'm sorry, uh, lines really, um, arrows. And on the top one, it says uh, there's a growing awareness of God's holiness. So the longer that we are walking in Christ, the longer that, that we're a believer, there's two things that we become more, more acutely aware of. One is the holiness of God. And the second one going downward is that there's a growing awareness of my flesh and my uh, sinfulness. And so 
as we become confronted with, and, and this happens a variety of ways. It happens through God-centered worship, like the kind that Pastor Chris leads here. It happens through taking in the story of redemption, that is, reading the Scriptures. It happens through even, you know, you can look at creation. You become aware of the eternality of God, right, the beauty of God. So we become more and more aware of the holiness of God, while at the same time becoming more and more aware of our own sinfulness. And what happens is the cross, Jesus gets magnified. He becomes bigger and bigger in our affections, bigger and bigger in our lives. The cross becomes more central to us in all of our dealings with people. And this is, this is the, what happens in maturation. Um, again, you, there's the, the new birth. And as I said on Sunday, you salvate, the Bible presents salvation in sort of three tenses. You, you were saved. Um, and as, as I said to a family just the other day, depending on what tradition you come from, you may or may not know exactly when that moment of conversion took place, right? If you, if you come from, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not bashing anybody here, but if you come from an independent fundamental Baptist, Baptist tradition, you have that verse written somewhere in your Bible, that, that time, if there's a time stamp, it was this date, it was this time or whatever. If you come from, you know, another tradition, if you come from a Lutheran tradition, Reformed tradition, whatever, you may not know exactly the time or the day, but you know generally. And it's not, the, the issue is not that I can remember. I don't know exactly myself when God brought me to say, I don't know like the day. I know the general time frame. I was sort of a preteen, you know, 12, 11, 12-ish. And God brings us to that point of brokenness and faith in Jesus where we recognize, you know, our need for a Savior and then, then the, the Bible says that we're saved, past tense. We are being saved, which is shaped and molded into the image of God's Son, sanctification. And then we will be saved in the end, which is the ultimate glorification of the believer. And, and during the, you know, in the sanctification process, again, we become more and more aware of God's holiness and more and more aware of our own flesh and sinfulness. So, this is what transformation looks like. Now, I'm going to give you some, some real practical, some, some uh, first fruits, if you will, of, of the, what that transformation looks like. But, but let me tell you what we tend to think, what we tend to think that transformation results in. First of all, greater activity. This is what we tend to believe. If I'm really growing in Christ, I'm being sanctified, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm, uh, you know, I'm getting, I'm maturing in my faith. It necessarily means greater activity, which means, um, you know, I'm, I'm in church, the church building more, and uh, I'm uh, doing more, and, you know, so on. So it's sort of, it, it's spiritual maturity is mistaken. Growth is mistaken for activism, which is not always the case. Another way that, that um, that's sort of masquerades as transformation is, make sure I didn't forget my password here, is um, kind of a new look. So we, we, we um, I'll give you a couple of examples. I was, I was walking in a little village in, uh, in Hammanskral, South Africa, with a missionary who was a, it was an American missionary ministering to South Africans. Um, and there was a guy who put his faith in Jesus. There was a, you know, this South African put his faith in Jesus out of, uh, you know, completely pagan background. And I remember this missionary who came from a very conservative background, he said to me, well, I think it's only a matter of time before he cuts his hair and gets rid of his earrings and so on. And I just looked at him, I said, well, why? Why, I mean, why does that have anything to do with anything? And in his mind, 
you know, when you become a Christian, you, you, you have to kind of look a different way. You know, you have short hair and, you know, you don't have tattoos and you don't look, wear certain things or, act, you know, whatever. So it's a new, it's a new look. You know, you got to kind of look the part. Um, another one is a very good friend of mine uh, who was in my small group for a number of years, um, was a real fighter, rebel, brawler, angry man. And God saved him. Before God saved him, he was totally covered, just tattoos all over. And he thought when he got it, became a, none of them were alike. I mean, they weren't, you know, murderous tattoos or evil or profane tattoos. But he thought when I got to become a Christian, I got to get rid of all this stuff. So he became a Christian and then went through the process of having all of them removed, which he said is way more painful. I don't know if you've ever, anyone ever done that before. Everyone, he said it's way more painful than actually getting the tattoo. But he said uh, he just felt like he had to look a certain way, you know, if he was a Christian. So that can masquerade as transformation. I got to sort of clean myself up the way that I look. Another one is more, quote, convictions. So all of a sudden, um, things that I never thought were wrong before, and I really have no reason, you know, in the scriptures to believe they're wrong, but all of a sudden now I'm going to, I got to have some more convictions, right? I got to have more sort of rules to live by. And they're not rules that come from the Bible, but just rules that, you know, I just feel like, well, this is the way a person who goes to church is supposed to do things. You know, you got to have all these rules. That, that can really masquerade as transformation, the heaping up of rules, which, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, another, another thing is rapid growth. So there's, a, there, there's the perception that, okay, once I become, and you hear these stories, and, and my mother, this is my mom's testimony, alcoholic, becomes a believer, and, you know, smoke, I don't know how many packs of cigarettes a day, whatever it was, Becomes a believer and then puts all that stuff aside. Praise God for that. It was awesome. And my mom just totally transformed. But then there's the perception that if I'm really in Christ, I'm just going to grow by leaps and bounds just constantly. So my thoughts, my actions, my motives, my de- everything is just going to be just going to be this sort of meteoric, you know, uh, improvement. And that's not the way the sanctification works. Um, there's a poet by the name of Mary Carr who lives in New York City. And um, she was talking about she became a Christian and God saved her out of complete paganism. And um, she was once agonizing over very slow progress in the Christian faith. She said, why am I not growing anymore? I'm growing so slowly. And then one day uh, she said after years of being a Christian, she realized that she now only wants to kill some of the people on the subway, whereas she used to want to kill all of them. And she said so that she realized, okay, I'm, a- I'm actually growing here, you know, because I really... I just hated everybody. You know, I just, I just couldn't stand anybody. Now I learn, I'm actually I'm learning to appreciate people and respect their differences. One of the things that we, again, that we tend to think happens when we are converted is all of a sudden we're just sort of like shot out of a rocket and all of our, you know, everything changes in terms of our desires. Now, some things change drastically and immediately. We, we want to glorify God rather than glorify ourselves. Um, we want to please God. We delight in worshiping Him. We're broken over our own sinfulness. And I'll talk about some of those things in a moment. But this idea that it's just sort of this incredible, fast-paced growth is not really the way that sanctification works. So, so what does it really look like? What are, what are some of the first fruits of a person who's actually been made alive in Christ and who is actually being transformed by the gospel? You know, we, we talk about our um, mission, making disciples who make disciples. Well, what, that begs a question, doesn't it? What is a disciple? 
And a disciple is a person who believes the gospel, is being transformed by the gospel, and shares the gospel. So this is what we're, this is what we're aiming for. People who actually truly believe and rest in the gospel, people who are being transformed by the power of the gospel, you know, albeit slowly at times, faster at other times, over a lifetime, being transformed by the gospel and then shares the gospel. So a person who's being transformed by the gospel, what are some of the things we see in that person? Okay, here, here's the first one. Let me say it's humility. Humility is one of the, it's the first fruit of a life that's being transformed. And you know, if you've read any C.S. Lewis, you know that he talks about humility, and he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. In other words, it's not, oh, I'm a, you know, I can't, you know, you're a, you're a doctor, you know. Oh, I'm a terrible, I'm, actually, I'm a terrible surgeon. I really don't know what I'm doing. I'm just, you know, this sort of faux, um, you know, all, you know, self, uh, you know, uh, you're putting yourself down all the time and so on. It's not, you know, well, I can't do anything right. I'm, I'm, I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. I'm, no, that's not humility, right? Humility is I'm just, I'm not, I'm thinking about myself less. I'm not always worried about you know, uh, what people think of me or how I look or I'm not fixated on my own sort of progress or whatever. So one of the very first fruits of a life that's being transformed by the gospel is humility, which manifests itself in a, a sense of self-suspicion. Self-suspicion. Log that word in the back of your minds. Self-suspicion. What that means is uh, a good friend of mine who's uh, a pastor in another state, he says one of his regular sayings is, and then he means it. He says, look, if you think I've wronged you, call me on it because I probably did. I, I'll own up to it. Just tell And there's, there's a self-suspicion like, yeah, you know, we, when, when, we, when Janine and I first got married, the first couple of years were really hard. I had no self-suspicion. Anytime there was an argument, I immediately concluded it was Janine's fault. It's always her fault. Um, and so, and it hardly ever was, to be honest with you. It was almost always my fault. But I didn't really see it that way. I wasn't looking at it that way. But a humble person is a self-suspicious person. So if you go to a humble person and you, and you say, here's how I believed you wronged me, they're not going to be scandalized by it. They're not going to think, oh, that could never, ever, ever happen. It just doesn't happen with me. No, there's a sense of self-suspicion like, yeah, you you come to now that doesn't mean that we, we we if someone tells us comes and they say that we they've wrong you've wronged or they've wronged us that even if we don't believe they have and they say something outlandish we just say yeah you know you're right that's that's a sort of therapeutic approach um, to resolving conflict but it's recognizing that yeah you know what I have I have plenty of sinful tendencies and if you say I've done something there's prob- there's a good chance that I probably have. And that's really the way the humility manifests itself. Another, another similar characteristic of a life that's being transformed is receptivity. And what I mean by that is <clears throat> there's, a, there's an openness to um, so people of, with a different perspective, right? So if someone comes to you and uh, they have a different view on something. They have a different argument. They're arguing a different position. And by arguing, I mean in the true sense of the word. They're just putting their position out there. There's a receptivity to it. Now, that doesn't mean you have to necessarily agree, but there's 
okay, well, let me, let me hear you out. And if, if someone makes a good, solid, especially biblical case, there's a willingness to say, okay, yeah, no, yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a receptivity to, to other people's perspectives and viewpoints. Um, there's a desire to listen. Um, there's a desire to know about other people. You ever spent a couple hours with someone over lunch or dinner, and then you leave, you realize, that person never asked me anything about me. The whole time, he just talked about himself. I don't have anybody in mind here. I really don't. But I, I, I mean, do you ever, you know, you, you're with somebody, and, and you realize, they never asked anything about me. It was all about them. Well, a person in whom the gospel is bringing about transformation that person wants to know about other people and learn and, and enjoy and delight in the way that God's made other people. There's a receptivity to, again, other ideas, uh, other perspectives, even if it's criticism. I think if, if someone comes to you and they criticize you about something, I, I think there are three ways that, that we can respond to criticism. And the first one is we say, Someone makes a, makes a good point, a, a legitimate point, and they criticize us, and we say, the first one is, you know what, you're right, and I'm wrong. And if it's a moral issue, we say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. You know, the first position is to say, yeah, you know what, actually, you're right. A second, I think a second response, a viable response is, um, okay, you know, I'm listening, and we see this in, in some of the cities that Paul visited, okay, I'm listening to you. I, I think I understand what you're saying, and I see some good points, but I don't, I don't, I don't fully agree. I'm not there yet. I'm not, or even, not yet. I'm not there. I don't agree, but I, I think I, can, I hear what you're saying. And a third position, <clears throat> of course, which is a viable position at times, is no, I don't agree with you, right? And if it's a moral issue, if someone else is caught in sin, there might be, there is a place. See this like four times in the first two chapters of Titus. There is a place where we say no. Actually, I believe you're wrong, and you need to repent. You need to repent, right? There's a place for rebuke. But I think that middle category is where we should be landing most of the time. You know, we listen, we engage. Um, okay, sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't, but there's a receptivity, which is part of the humility that characterizes a person who is in Christ. Um, another characteristic is gratitude. person who is being transformed by the power of the gospel becomes increasingly aware of God's benevolence, increasingly aware of God's generosity, of God's kindness. Because you saw those two lines, you know, those arrows going one up and one going down, we will become increasingly aware that I've actually been loved with this incredible love, even though I'm so far, I've fallen so short of what God has actually called me to do and be. And so there's gratitude, right? There's a great story in John 7 where, uh, I'm going to butcher it because I didn't, I didn't plan on talking about it, but uh, the, the, where the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, see Jesus uh, lavish and pouring out his affection on, on a woman who's known to be a prostitute, and they're all, all angry about it. And, and Jesus says to them, um, you know, the one who has been forgiven much forgives much, right? To say it a different way, the one who's been loved much, loves much. So the more that we realize how much we've been loved by God in Christ, it does foster a sense of gratitude. Um, and 
the next one is is love naturally um again we realize how much we've been loved so we're then we're we're both we're both spurred on to love others but because of this new nature we're there we're then enabled to love others so so love is of course we see throughout the scriptures one of the the characteristics of a person who you know who understands and is being transformed by the gospel it's not i mean look activity increased activity is good in in many cases like okay so you you weren't reading the bible very much and maybe you pick it up you know once a week or once a month or whatever and then all of a sudden you 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 feel this you you want to really read you want to know god better you want to take you know take in the story you start reading the bible more that's a good thing that's not a bad thing but just reading the Bible more doesn't necessarily mean you're being, you know, doesn't equal transformation. There are a lot of people who read and read, but you don't see some of these other things. You don't see the humility. You don't see the receptivity to other people's perspectives, ideas, and, and so on. You don't see a sense of gratitude, right? You don't see an overwhelming sense of love. And I remember I shared this story. I think maybe I shared this story on the night we had the old the all church, the all church prayer gathering, but about my stepfather who came to saving faith at 73, long time hostile to things of God, angry at us when we would talk about spiritual things. And the first thing I noticed in him when he, when God brought him to saving faith was he was grateful. I'd never seen this before in this man, very self-reliant, independent, hardworking, 38 years without ever calling in sick, going to work, vomiting, flu, temperature, just very, very self-reliant. And when, he, when God brought him to saving faith at the age of 73, the first time I saw gratitude, I saw, I saw receptivity. He wouldn't listen. Any, any ideas that my sister's like this, she's like a real certified genius, like, you know, Mensa, te, you know, all this stuff, right? But we're growing up, he didn't want to hear, my stepdad, he didn't want to hear from, I'm, I'm much less intelligent than she is, but he didn't want to hear from either one of us, right? He, he just wanted... He had his own thoughts and ideas. He didn't want to listen. But when God brought him to saving faith, he, he, he was receptive and he was grateful. Um, another, another one, which may surprise you, a characteristic of what person is being transformed by the gospel is spontaneity. Spontaneity. Now, why do you think that might be the case? And this is not a rhetorical question. Anybody have any thoughts on why would spontaneity be a characteristic of a person who is being transformed by the gospel. Any, what's that? Yeah, okay, yeah. So there's, yeah, that's great. So one of them is there's a receptivity to the Spirit's leading, right? And sometimes we see this with Paul, the Apostle Paul, right? I was going here, and but the door was closed to me or whatever, right? So, yeah, part of it is is a sensitivity to the Spirit's leading, the indwelling Spirit. Yeah, what what some other things you think? Yeah, okay, the redu- yeah, the reduction of pride, Um yeah, because spontaneity really is the opposite of sort of fear, isn't it? Sort of control, I guess, is a different word, you know, sort of controlled. Um, so what happens is the person who is overwhelmed, who, who is overwhelmed with fear, fear of performance, fear of success, fear of people's opinion, they, they want to stick with a plan, don't they? They don't want to take any chances. Things could go awry. They want to try anything new because what if it doesn't work? And the last thing I want to deal with is, is having to explain why I failed at something. 
But a person who is being transformed by the gospel is spontaneous because, yes, they're being led by the Spirit, and the, they, they've sort of their pride has been checked at the door, but there's also a newfound freedom to fail. Because if I try something and I fail, my life is not turned upside down because what really matters, my identity with Christ, is still secure. So I can, be, I can, do, I can do something and fail. I can try something and change. I can totally change course. And if I fail, it's okay because I still belong to God. I'm still a child of God. I'm still uh, an heir of all the eternal blessings in Christ. My identity has not been rocked, and so I'm able to be spontaneous. Here's the, the next one. This may surprise you, too. A characteristic of a person who's being transformed by the gospel is humor. Humor. And here's why I say that. Um, those, this, the, there's no room for laughter for the self-righteous because everything is riding on their performance. Everything is riding on their reputation. There's no, the, the, the self-righteous are the very self-serious. You've noticed this, I'm sure. Um, there's, no, there's no room for, for uh, laughter because that's a waste of time. I could be accomplishing something else to make people, you know, look at me in a certain way. So there's really very humor is disarming. Um, humor uh, is is sort of a especially if it's if it's self-deprecating, if it's not sort of self-aggrandizing humor. It's um it's what I would call the laughter of the forgiven, right? If you know you've been forgiven, um, there's actually you know you 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 can say. Yeah, I, I blew it. You can even laugh at your mistakes. If yourself, the Pharisees never laughed at themselves, I can guarantee you. That's nowhere in the Bible, which is me sort of extrapolating, right? But there's no room for laughter for the self-serious, for the self-righteous. I, there's a, I preached through Matthew, I guess it was, it was only about a year ago or so. I was working through Matthew. And there's a, there's a two-part commentary on Matthew. The whole thing is like, I don't know, 2,200 pages, but by Frederick Dale Bruner. It's so unbelievably good. It's the best thing I've ever seen on the Gospel of Matthew. But, but, when, but throughout the commentary, uh, Frederick Dale Bruner calls the, 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 the Pharisees the self-righteous. He refers to them as the self-serious. And so he'll say the self-serious. And that's because he understands that when your, your own salvation is really riding on you, and you, you're really, you know, you, your own righteousness is what's going to get you in or out. There's no time for laughter. There's no time for joking. There's no time for anything but seriousness, because you, uh, you don't know the, you don't know the laughter of the forgiven. There's a, there's a delightful willingness to be wrong, because you can afford to, which is not, we're not trying to be wrong, but we realize even if I'm wrong. Right? My eternal state is not in jeopardy. But for the self-serious, for the self-righteous, I can't be wrong because everything is hinging on my reputation, the way you see me and the way God sees me, and the way God sees me is always according to my own righteousness, my own obedience. So now this is going to, this is, I, I'm really excited about this study. Um, next week, Pastor Adam is going to cover chapter 2, which is... Uh, 
entitled pretending or performing. He's going to show the, these, these different ways. Is there any way, uh, Ashley or whoever's up there, you could put that chart back up? Um, the uh, Yeah, thank you very much. So as we grow in our awareness of God's holiness and at the same time our sinfulness, the cross and Christ get bigger and more mag uh, magnified, more beautiful. But there is a way to shrink the cross. And I didn't, we don't have that chart. I'll show it next week, or Adam will. But there's a way to shrink the cross, and that's by pretending or performing. We're, we'll break that down. And I hope, my, my, my hope, my desire is that as we work our way through this, um, it's really going to help us uh, have more joy in Christ as I, as I pray on a regular basis for people that I know and love. I say, God, increase their joy in you. And so it's going to increase our joy in Christ. It's going to, it's going to increase our, our freedom um, with which we live. It's going to increase our laughter. It's going to increase our patience. It's going to increase the way that we love one another, all as we sort of look at uh, this particular uh, study. 